The challenges of the workplace and life in general can be multiplied in the aftermath of a significant emergency or major disaster. We'll talk with a cognitive scientist who uses her lived experience to help others recover emotionally after a disaster. Up next on this episode of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. Safety at work is more than freedom from physical injury. To be safe, you have to feel safe. Join us each week as we discuss psychologically healthy and safe work in the USA. Welcome to this week's Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. I'm your host, Dr. I. David Daniels, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Each week, we seek to increase awareness of the importance of psychological health and safety by learning from the lived experiences, research, and expertise of our guests, as well as advocating strategies to reduce harm and minimize vulnerability to psychosocial hazards in the American workplace. Between 2000 and 2019, 7,348 disaster events were recorded worldwide by the Center for Research on the Epidemiology of Disasters, or CRAD. In total, disasters claimed nearly 1.3 million lives, an average of about 60,000 a year, and averaged, uh, in terms of impacting, about 4 billion people, in some cases, multiple uh, occasions. Additionally, disasters led to approximately $3 trillion in economic losses, again, worldwide. Many of these locations and dates had something else in common other than the fact that there were significant losses of life and damage to both public and private property. Each one of these locations was someone's workplace, either public or private. And each situation had a direct effect not only on those who died or were injured, but on their family and friends and coworkers and the communities and shareholders and constituents of the communities where these incidents occurred. So where do organizations, communities, or individuals turn to help them recover emotionally from these emergencies or disasters? Well, enter folks like today's guest whose experience of surviving a disaster informs their efforts to support others in the aftermath of an emergency or disaster. Jolie Wills is a cognitive scientist and the co-founder of a company called Huntingly, which works with organizations, communities, and individuals in the aftermath of disasters to address the emotional and mental impacts that these incidents have. She has a story to tell, and we're certainly here to talk about it today. So uh, the first question we ask for guests on this podcast is who is Jolie Wills? Wow, great question. <laughs> <laughs> I am, you might tell I speak a bit funny. So I'm a New Zealander. So I'm from um, Christchurch or Otutahi, as we say in um, the indigenous language in New Zealand. So that's my hometown. But I now live in Denver. So cognitive scientist is my background. I'm also a wife and mum of two kids who are now out of the coop and at university. And I'm really interested in basically applying the lessons from disasters 
because there's so much that we can learn there, even for everyday times, right? So how do we take those those lessons and those learnings and really support the well-being and resilience and performance for organizations, teams, and communities? Well, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, uh, the... <laughs> The, uh, the the folks that sponsor this podcast are actually in Australia. So when folks listen, they may think that they're catching on to one of the other family of podcasts. But again, we are here in the U.S. and it's been a pleasure to be able to get to know you. Uh, and you bring an interesting perspective uh, moving here recently, a perspective from an environment where there's lots of conversation about psychological health and safety to a country where not so much. So uh, we're gonna, I'm just going to really enjoy the conversation, I'm sure. So let's 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 dig in a bit. When I say, or when I, uh, when you hear the term psychological health and safety, what does that mean to you? I guess I am probably going to be biased by the experience that I've had. You know, um, basically, it means being well and being able to do well. And I often think about some of the hazards that we are exposed to that goes beyond often we think about being well and doing well is just about you know how we cope and our own intrinsic kind of um, personality or our coping mechanisms. But it has a lot to do with what we are exposed to as well, just like any other hazard. It's this, this combination of all of their things, you know, um, what it is we do and how we manage ourselves, but also what our organization does and how they protect us um, and, you know, how we manage some of the hazards that we're exposed to um, psychologically. Absolutely. And, and again, you, uh, you would certainly know this in the environments that you've been in, that all hazards are not necessarily ones that you can see. Uh, they aren't necessarily ones that someone else looking at you would be able to even identify. And the way we describe psychosocial hazards, at least in the context of this conversation, is uh, a psychosocial factor that is perceived or experienced by the person as a hazard or a threat, mm -hmm. which in turn affects their behavior. And you can't always see that just on the outside looking in. And so if someone were to look at you, and, and again, it's not that you talk funny. I mean, uh, from there, I, I, live in, I live in just outside Atlanta, Georgia, and there's some folks here who talk, uh, some might think they talk funny as well. But it's, uh, it's one of the, <laughs> it's the interesting thing about human uh, language and dialects. But uh, well, is there a particular situation or circumstance that, got you thinking the way that you do about um, psychological health and safety, particularly, you know, you, you know, as your company, we'll talk about that here in a second, uh, around disasters. Is there something particular that causes you uh, to feel or think that way? Yeah, yeah. And for me, it, it comes from being in the, in the depths of working after disaster and all of that entails, you know, the, the intense pressure, the wanting to get it right, you know, feeling that responsibility um, and, of course, the you know, incredible sets of needs and supports that you're needing to provide, the demands that are on you. Um, so a little bit of the backstory that might be helpful gives you a sense as to why this became so important to, to me and is such a big part of Hummingly and what we do is it sort of starts really in the middle of the night, you know, pitch black, four o'clock in the morning. Um, 
on a what is a, a quite a cold spring morning in New Zealand. So we're we're back to front, so September. <laughs> and um we were woken by this huge earthquake. And it was massive. You know, I grew up with earthquakes and I quite liked them. It was kind of exciting, a bit like a good lightning storm. You know, lots of little earthquakes happened all the time, but this was something different. This was like a train coming, you know, through your back back of your house or a plane coming down in your backyard. Um, so our our whole home turned into an obstacle course. And my husband and I, I don't know how we knew, we just went one to each child. And they were six and ten at the time, you know, so the doors are flapping and the walls are, are moving and the furniture's joggling around and the floor's going up and down. And we got one one to each kid. And that was just the beginning for us. And I think that's the part of the story that um, often seems the most interesting, but actually it's not the most important part of the story um, in terms of this journey towards really understanding and appreciating the importance of psychological um, safety. That came in the months and years afterwards. And there might be some parallels that your listeners might be able to hear too in terms of uh, what they've lived through the last couple of years with COVID, if, if we talk about what came next. You know, for us, we had 15,000 aftershocks in the period of five years after the earthquakes. So that really, you know, that, that fear for your safety and for the safety of your, your family, your children, your friends, your loved ones, um, and that uncertainty and unpredictability that we had to live with as a population um, was huge. And I wasn't just raising a family, you know, I was leading a team of people who were um, responding to support the communities in Christchurch after the earthquakes. So, you know, incredibly psychologically demanding work, but we're also impacted ourselves, you know. So in my case, I was a leader who's impacted by the event, having to repair our own homes, having to, you know, think about how we parent differently through all of that all of those concerns, um, the anxiety, the uncertainty, um, and that sense of making progress. And then suddenly we get walloped by another earthquake and we'd be back to square one, which is kind of, you know, you think about COVID, there was a lot of that as well. You know, along comes another strain or another outbreak. And um, so we knew that it was going to be longer and more complicated, that we were always going to have this naive sense of how long it's going to take to sort itself out at the beginning. We know that because we've worked in disasters before. Um, just like in COVID, you know, who would have believed that it would go on this long? And so with a team of people that we knew were impacted too and that were really feeling the responsibility of supporting people in the community and they were working under such prolonged cumulative pressure, I just knew we had to find a way to support them, you know, that this could make or break our people. And um, the reality is I threw everything I could think of at this team. You know, briefing, debriefing, professional supervision, mentoring, yoga at lunchtime, walking groups, you know, you name it, we threw the whole kit and caboodle at this team. And the reality is we were still burning them out. Mm-hmm. And to me, I was seeing the impacts of working under this prolonged cumulative stress um, and what it was doing to them, what it was doing to our mission. Um, and it just wasn't okay, you know. So that led me to think this is not the first disaster the world's ever had. And so I went looking to see what other research was out there. And at the time, this is a decade ago, there was nothing that was really very helpful, you know, that really fit our context. And so I was lucky enough to get a Winston Churchill Fellowship. And that meant that I could travel to other disaster zones around the world, not looking at the first days or weeks, but looking at that long tail, that long pressured, you know, cumulative stress piece to get an understanding of what are the impacts 
of working in this kind of environment you know like how hazardous is it is it just our team or is this something others experience and what can we do to keep our people safe working in this kind of environment so they can continue to be and do well you know and not be damaged by their experience you know, great people putting their heart on the line you know so yeah how do we protect and look after them um, and do great work as a team how do we perform collectively best way possible for the benefit of the communities that we really wanted to support in the best best possible way you know i've uh over the course of my uh working life in the fire rescue and emergency service business i've certainly heard similar stories from those who have been able to survive major disasters, those who've been responders, those who've helped others. I haven't heard a lot of stories, though, of folks who've been able to take that experience and uh, actually turn it into a body of research, an opportunity to see what others were doing. I, that, that's, that's fairly rare. Uh, in many cases, you know, folks, it's, it's so tough just to be able to recover yourself. So share a little bit more about the Winston Churchill so I, I can't say I'd ever even heard of that before. I don't think, I'm not sure if we even have that here in the States. So tell me a little bit about how yeah. that came about. I think it's a Commonwealth thing. So I think it's a Commonwealth countries. And the idea being it's a funded scholarship where you part pay and they part pay. And you're essentially looking at a really practical problem where you're going offshore to bring back the knowledge um, and information that can really benefit your community. So, you know, basically it was around New Zealand needs this. We need this in this in this event that we're, we're facing here in Christchurch. Um, and the information just isn't there. So let's go and learn from elsewhere. What we're doing is not working. So what will, you know, and try and, and work that out. You know, for me, it was really understanding that it's not the first disaster the world's ever had. Right. So why would we not be looking elsewhere to, to find out people who have been through this hard stuff before? There's probably things they wish that they had done. Right. There's probably things that they know now they wish they'd known earlier. So, you know, in terms of the responsibility, duty of care for our people, why would we not be looking for that, trying to apply that earlier? Um, and for me, it was thinking about how can we prevent damage from these psychosocial hazards that we're seeing our people being impacted by? But also knowing that post-traumatic growth, that's a real thing. It's a very real phenomenon. So, you know, through this adversity, as hard as it is, and it doesn't downplay that the pain that people experience, there's a very real possibility of our teams and our people growing. Um, so I wanted to understand more about how we can minimize that damage and maximize that, that growth in tough conditions, you know, as an organization, as a team, and for the people that, that we're responsible for leading. Yeah. So... That's that's how that came about. So, wow, that's absolutely phenomenal. It, it really is. It, it's it's wonderful to hear uh, society, any portion of society, to hear when there are opportunities for people to take their experiences and then go and learn. You said that there uh, that wasn't the first disaster. That probably won't be the last either. <laughs> and that's the advantage of you going out and doing this research uh, and you're being able to see it, you know, in other contexts, in other parts of the world. Uh, but again, the similarities are there are disasters every place on this planet. So uh, can you can you talk a little bit more about, you know, uh, what that research looked like? How was it structured? And, and you know, did you 
Did you interview people? Did you observe people? Did you write lots of papers? Take us inside what that, that research project looked like. Yeah, and it was all done through interviews. And it was quite intentionally done by interviewing you know, a, a broad spectrum of people um, who are finding themselves working in these really prolonged, high-stress, high-stakes kind of environments. Um, and I should say, in parallel, my co-founder, Elizabeth McNaughton, she was looking at leadership. You know, when you're leading in this very uncertain times and you're having to make decisions with very imperfect information and there's a huge amount at stake, she was lucky enough to be awarded a Winston Churchill Fellowship as well, separately. So we had two separate research pieces going on, looking at if leaders could go back in time um, in this very uncertain, unpredictable environment in terms of leading their people, what do they wish they'd known? You know, so between the two of us, we interviewed more than 100 crisis leaders and people working in this environment. Um, and it was everywhere from um, Australia. So we looked at the Black Saturday bushfires. So they were bushfires that happened a couple of years. They called them bushfires in Australia. So wildfire. So a couple of years before um, our earthquake. So they were two years ahead of us, right? And we went to like Kobe, who were 20 years ahead of us. Kobe in Japan after a big earthquake um, to the tsunami that they had in Japan a month after us. So we were, you know, probably pretty on a similar journey and track at that stage. Um, came here to the US, looked at the likes of 9-11, um, Hurricane Katrina, uh, and through to earthquakes in Italy. So very much looking at cultures that it was, you know, similar to ours um, in terms of, you know, um, in terms of, yeah, some of the, the challenges that we'd be facing, um, in terms of our, you know, our government structures, things like that, and really getting a sense of if they could go back in time, what do they really wish that they had known? What really worked for the things that were put in place to protect their people? And what are the things that they learned the hard way that if they could go back, that they would definitely be putting those things in place? You know? So really getting a sense of that. Um, and to give you an indication, there was... One lady that just comes to mind, she was a woman who um, was in her 60s. She was working in um, a tsunami-impacted community in Japan. And in speaking with her, I was really worried about the cultural differences that we might experience. You know, like, would I get this wrong in terms of some of the questions that I'm asking, knowing it's very different, more collective culture in Japan? Um, and how would it go when I'm asking about whether their organisation was was supporting them in the way that they needed these sorts of questions, how how would that land? And so I was working through an interpreter, and I remember just saying to her, "This is what we're experiencing in our in our teams, and I just want to get an understanding as whether or not you know that how does this look elsewhere? Like, is this a problem that's just ours? Is this you know? So what what have you experienced, and what has worked for you, and what has helped, and all of these things? And this lady jumped up and started running around the table, and she was chanting something. I thought, oh, no, I've messed this up. Like, culture, I've done something wrong here. Like, this is just bad. And I um, looked to the interpreter, and she said, no, no, it's okay. What she is saying is, I am human. I am human. You know, and she eventually settled back down and she said, do you know the first year in this work, I had all this energy, I had all this motivation, I just cared so much about the mission. She said in the second year, I had the motivation and the mission, you know, like really um, cared about it deeply, but I'd lost, you know, some of that, that energy. The third year, I was losing the motivation and I knew I needed to care about this, but I, I just, you know, I was just feeling so flat and exhausted. And she said, and you're telling me that other people feel that way as well, you know, that this is 
that I'm actually human, that it's not, I've been judging myself for the fact that I just haven't reacted the way that I wanted to, or that three years in, I'm not performing how I, I really want to be. And um, she invited me to dinner at her place, invited her whole team, because I've never had this open conversation about it. And just said, tell them what you told me. You know, so um, I think, you know, it's really interesting. In New Zealand, we have this thing called the number eight wire complex. And the idea is New Zealanders are really tough, right? We're tough. We, you know, the the um, European settlers, when they came over to New Zealand, you know, had to clear land, they had to farm, they had to be really self-sufficient, you know, in really tough conditions. So if the tractor broke, you've got to find a way to fix it, and you fix it with a piece of fencing wire, right? You've got to be able to fix anything, be self-sufficient with a piece of fencing. We don't ask for help. It's not a done thing. We don't ask. We're self-sufficient, right? I came to the States, and I heard here, we're very different to everyone else. We don't ask for help. We don't admit weakness. You know, like it's like John, we've got to be like John Wayne. Right. And I got to Japan and they said, we're really different to everybody else. You know, we don't ask for help. You know, samurai do not show weakness. And it was just fascinating to me, you know, some of our, you know, we all have our different cultural spin on it and different, you know, backgrounds and reasons. Um, but how lousy we are sometimes as humans at really recognizing what is human, what's normal, um, you know, you know, what does vulnerability look like and um, acknowledging when it's not necessarily us, but it's a reaction to the hazards that we're we're experiencing, that we can we can break the most resilient of people if we load them up for too much, you know, with too much for too long. Just it's fascinating to hear you talk about the differences uh, of the you know eight billion people on the planet, but at the same time, so much similarity. So Absolutely. difference <laughs> difference in you know, culture in foods folks like and, you know, clothing that they wear and, and stories that they tell, but ultimately underneath it all, uh, yeah. some very, very similar ways of addressing particular, particularly situations where folks are at threat or challenged. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's a, that those were some individual discussions. Did you, uh, did you research or talk about, you know, team and organizational level challenges with these same uh, kinds of situations? Absolutely. And I think a couple of things that came out really strongly was that that stress is cumulative, right? And it's so insidious and it can really sneak up on people and be quite invisible. And so the organizational piece of that is, is really important. So if I, I tell another story, and she was actually the very first person on the, the world tour, so to speak, that I interviewed. So I was, you know, pretty nervous at this point with my very first participant and um, she was an amazing lady working in a small community that had been decimated by the wildfires that they'd had in Australia and um, she said to me you know people often and I think we have a much better understanding with COVID of that what that tail the long tail of stress and the impacts of that you know I think as a society we're, we're better equipped to understand this but at the time she said people outside just who aren't impacted you know, don't get it. They just think that maybe we're, we're whining or asking for things that you know, are unreasonable. And she said, I think it's just trying to get people to understand the impact of carrying um, this prolonged pressure. You know, this, this kind of working in this environment is really challenging. She said, so I've come to describe it like carrying a load of bricks. She said, you know, like before any big disruption or big event, you know, like I already had some bricks. You know, like I'm working in a role that's pretty challenging. You know, it has its moments. It has some things that I can't control. You know, I have some tricky interactions sometimes with community members. You know, I have, you know, resources that I have to work out how to best allocate. There's not enough for everything. She said, um, you know, I have family logistics. 
as well that I'm thinking about. I have aging parents. I've got you know, financial concerns. So I've kind of already got this whole load of bricks that I'm, you know, managing. That's just kind of part of life. You just got to deal with it, right? She said, but then along comes, you know, a huge event or um, just this, you know, very prolonged, protracted kind of environment after disruption. And she said, you know, everything becomes more complicated. I'm having to work out, you know, my different routines, how I how I parent in this kind of disrupted environment. And, and, you know, the systems that we've got set up aren't really working for this hybrid kind of environment that we work in or this new world that we're operating in. And she said, so, you know, everything's more difficult. So suddenly I'm ending up with a whole lot more bricks. And she said, I, it's fine. I thought it was going to be for a little bit. And I could manage that. And she said, but the problem is that they just seem to keep coming. And they just, you know, stayed so much longer, these bricks, than I ever thought they would. And then Jeremy over there is having a hard time with his bricks because we're all pretty overloaded right now. And so, you know, I'm kind of that go-to person. So I said, yeah, sure, give me some of your bricks, Jeremy. Like, you know, fool me, she said. You know, I'm that person that always says, yes, I'm the safe pair of hands. So I've got some of Jeremy's bricks. She said, and then my boss comes to me and says, Anne, look, I really hope you're looking after yourself. I can see you've got a lot going, you know, a lot going on. Self-care, that's, that's the key, that's all important. But I need you to do four more things for me by the end of the week, which chucks on four more bricks. And so I think for me, it was really obvious that, that stress is compounding. It's cumulative. It can be quite invisible and quite insidious. And it became really obvious that um, well-being and psychological safety at work is a triple responsibility, right? So when I say that, I mean... There's a lot Anne can be doing to be, you know, putting boundaries in place and maybe, you know, working out when she should be taking on extra bricks and, um, you know, like working out which of these bricks she's adding to herself in terms of the story she tells, and, you know, like looking after her self-care and and um, being as well and, and resilient as she possibly can be. Absolutely, that's that's a piece, but we it doesn't work if we're going to keep loading people up to breaking mm. point, right? That's one part of the puzzle only. You know, it's an important part, and we do have a lot of power as individuals, but it, it's not enough, right? So if we ignore the other two pieces, we're still going to to um, injure and damage amazing people. And then I see people all just hire someone who's stronger, and then it's just this turn and turn, which is just terrible for great people. You know, like, it's just not okay. Mm. And then at the other end of the, the triple responsibility is the organisation, right? So... One of the things we did in the research was really trying to understand what are some of the the things that make working in this environment difficult, you know? So there's a whole lot of things that you can't control that are outside of your environment, uh, out of your control that are, might be the disaster environment, for example. And so it became really clear there are three types of bricks, right? So there are things that you can influence and control that you just have to find a way to deal with, right? So if you're a farmer, you can't control the weather for example, right? You know, so there are, there are things in everybody's role that you just have to, to manage that make life tricky. And then the second one is, as I said before, the things that you put on your own load. And then the third one that seemed to be by far the weightiest came from organisational pieces. So it might be systems that just don't fit reality. It might be um, you know, the style of leadership or management. It might be the culture within an organisation. You know, it's all of those sort of um, you know, pieces that I think the exciting thing is that they're shiftable, mm. right? If we understand them, we can shift those things. So I think for me, it's understanding, okay, we, we do need to ask people to look after themselves and that's really vitally important. But as an organisation, do we really understand, you know, what are the psychosocial hazards we're exposing people to, do, to and the things that we could shift or change because it, it's like any other, any other hazard. Normally you'd, you know, isolate, minimise, you know, all of those things. You'd be looking at, Okay, 
what can I get to the source of? What do I really understand? What can I, what can I you know, address and shift? Mm-hmm. And what for those things I can't shift, how do I protect people? You know, so, so at the individual level, organizational level is huge. You know, what we can do as leaders, we have massive power in the organization to, to address some of the challenges that people are facing. And in between, there's the team. I think, you know, we all know what it's like to turn up, you know, work somewhere where the team's a bit dysfunctional, a bit toxic, or, you know, it just the, the <laughs> I'm getting the eyebrow from, from David, but it's it, just that. It, imagine that. <laughs> but, and yet team has, you know, at a team level, there's the most amazing power to really support each other's well-being if we know how you know, which is a big part of what we do at Hummingly, you know, is to provide leaders the, the tools to be able to, to deal to the organisational piece and teams with the tools to be able to really understand how to support each other under the pressure. Um, you know, so, yeah, three pieces to that, to that, to the answer and solution, really. Yeah. So you, you go on this journey, have this extended research, talking to folks all over the world, and uh, at some point, uh, you and your co-founder decide to form this this company, uh, Hummingly. So first of all, so Hummingly, where where does that uh, tell tell a little bit about where that name even comes from, and, <laughs> and and what it is you all set out to do when you formed a Hummingly? Yeah. So Hummingly, as I said, you know, like there was so much we needed in terms of those lessons from disasters that made such a massive difference to how we performed, you know, how we feared, how things went. And I should say, New Zealanders, we say fear, 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 all the same. So when I say feared, I mean fear, F-A-R-E-D. So, <laughs> you know, so how, how we managed to do, you know. So to us, it was we just saw the difference that that made. You know, it was a real design challenge that we were facing with our people. How do we get intentional about maximising growth, minimising damage, right? How do we really support performance and have people leaving work feeling and doing well, you know, in all aspects of their life? And we realized this wasn't a challenge that only we faced. Yeah. So Elizabeth and I have been working and we've worked in disasters all over the globe. So we've supported teams that have been facing similar challenges elsewhere. And we felt kind of an ethical responsibility really to make that knowledge available to others that, you know, why, why would we be continuing to make the same mistakes and to, to hurt good people, you know, and... For us, this, this knowledge needed to be accessible. Um, and I think it's also realising that, you know, risk and uncertainty and the fast change of, um, the fast pace of change that we're facing, these just are our times now, you know, and there's a lot that we can do with uh, the learnings from disasters to really support leaders and teams to, to really be able to, to do well in these kinds of environments. You know? So that's the reason that, that, we, that we're here. So uh, I, you know how we can kind of get typecast when we do a particular thing for a really long period of time. So uh, a lot of folks who know me uh, will not be surprised that I'm having this conversation with you about disasters and stuff. And I go, oh, there he goes with the disaster stuff. So how do you then help people who are not in the midst of a disaster? They don't see it as one. Mm-hmm. How do you, How do you take these the learning, the research, the information that you've gathered and help them apply that to situations that they don't classify as a significant emergency or disaster. They may not be going as smooth as they want. So how how do those lessons translate into everyday business, government, 
uh, small or large business, uh, you know, family. How, how do those lessons translate and how do you help folks translate them? Yeah, great question. Great question. I love it. Um, I think if we think about how our world has changed, as I said before, you know, risk and disruption, uncertainty, they're just kind of part of the deal now. I think if you think about we've got remote working, we've got these teams that are feeling quite disconnected. We've got increasing rates of burnout, um, you know, rapid change, high turnover. We've got, you know, the knowledge and strategies and the skills that we really need to do well in this kind of environment. It's good for organisations, right? Organisations need this. It's really vital for teams. And it's really good for the career development of our people as individuals as well, you know, but also for their life outside of work. These are skills that we all need, you know, in the world that we're operating in. So it's not, it's not just about disasters, right? Um, but companies that, and organizations that upskill their people to be up for the challenge, they're the ones that are going to do well now in the world that we're operating in. You know, they're the ones that are, are going to be set up to do well in the future, no matter what comes their way. Right? right. So it's not just about disaster, but boy, the learning from disaster, you know, working in the toughest of environments. Um, that's what can really give organizations and teams and individuals a, a real head start. You know, so, yeah. Yeah. You know, I uh, you make me just, you know, cause me to recall something that I've been thinking about for a few years. The fact that, again, people have these distinctions. And uh, so. In our everyday environment, there are things that people would classify as an incident. Uh, something happened. You know, it may or may not have gone the way we thought, but we just considered an incident and, and almost assumed that it's isolated. Some of those incidents become emergencies where mm -hmm. property or people's lives or something is threatened. It may not necessarily, you know, turn out that way, but it's a possibility. Mm -hmm. Some of those emergencies... Uh, they, they, they get to the point to where they exceed the capacity of the people who are there to deal with it, and that's a disaster. Yes. And, and, and people, there are people who are experiencing disasters right now that never make the news. Mm -hmm. And the, what made it a disaster is it was too big for me. It was too big for the people around me. It was too big for my company, for my team. So as you, as you aptly said, it's important just to not make these distinctions the same. As a matter of fact, I, I'm, I'm a believer that... Because people look at a disaster and an incident so different, that's why they don't do well in either. Mm -hmm. Because it's like, well, in a disaster, we need this whole different set of things that we do. No, no, it's the same. The risk and risk and risk are risk. I mean, it doesn't matter, you know, uh, if it happens in a context of a disaster or the incident that happened at work. It's a risk. There's a, there's a there's an assessment that has to be done. We have to find out how vulnerable we are to that hazard and whether or not we're going to be harmed by it. It's the same mentality. And I just, I just really, it's interesting to hear how you've, you know, I think we've probably taken a similar journey. You go from the really big things and you find out that they're big things or multiple small things that just happen at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They absolutely yep. do. Yeah. And I yeah. think disasters just force us so far out of our comfort they zones. They do. But they teach us a lot that we should be applying in everyday life. And life is about curveballs. It, it brings is. adversity. It brings challenge. That's right. It. And we all want to be able to do well through that, that challenge and learn and grow as a result rather than, you know, rather than be damaged. So absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and it really um it's really important what you were saying about uh looking at people and their experience in disasters and how they can stay in the game, so to speak, because 
uh, as you've experienced and others have experienced. So those who haven't necessarily had this happen to them sometimes assume, oh, they, you know, they had that earthquake or that flood or the fire or whatever it was, you know, that was four or five, eight years ago. So what, what's what's the big deal now? And it's, you know, in emergency management, we talk about prevention, mitigation, preparedness, response, and recovery. And that recovery phase for some people goes on for years, and in some cases, even decades. And often it's the emotional piece. Yes. You know, it's it's the anniversary that comes up. It's the, you know, the situation that comes up that is similar. It's that, as you talked about, having these multiple small earthquakes, they didn't mm-hmm. damage your building the same way, your home the same way, but they felt the same. You know, they felt as if this could be that whole entire thing again. So it's that emotional piece. And uh, so, so when, when people engage hummingly, mm-hmm. um, what, what do those engagements tend to look like? Do you find that some people, it's after the fact, or are there folks out there who go, well, you know, we want to learn from the experiences of others? Yeah. I mean, ideally, it would be the latter, but realistically, it's the former. <laughs> so, yeah. So often we have, we have teams that ring us and say, organization that rings us, ring us and say, um, we've got half our senior leadership team on stress leave, help us, right? Or our turnover has just skyrocketed, please help us. You know, and we, we are there, like we'll, we'll be there to support, absolutely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what I encourage people to do is to really think about how do we create that healthy, productive environment at work? You know, how do we create connected, cohesive teams? How do we um, really ensure that we've got amazing morale? You know, how do we have people operating and performing at their best? Let's put the structures in place in a preventative way, like we would any other hazard, right? So we, we tend to um, tend to be called in when the pain becomes, you know, great enough that, that really there's the realisation that we have to do something <laughs> about this. And, yeah, and that's, that's valid. You know, that's yes. real. We've been yes. there. I get mm-hmm. that. I totally mm-hmm. get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and often we think we're going to be fine. You know, it's just... We'll, we'll just put on hold all of these things for a little bit and um, and, it, and we have this naive sense as to how long, you know, disruption and things um, might go on for, you know, and it's not until things, the, the wheels start falling off a little bit and everyone's just so exhausted and it's the right. same pattern, same right. pattern we see play out again and again. It's a very human reality. If you've got teams that are pretty scratchy with each other, none of us are at our best selves when we're really, really tired. We've been running hard for a long time. You know, if, yeah, if you're finding that people have put on hold things like their health basics, right, or nurturing their relationships or doing things that give them joy, like we put that stuff on hold for a little bit because we, we're dealing to this extra load of bricks that we've suddenly got. But if you're like Anne, and, you know, most people are, then those bricks don't come off for a really long time. It's a long, protracted journey. And when we put on hold our health basics, our relationships, things that bring us joy, you know, it's a big energy depletion exercise. And eventually our tank will run dry. And I mean right. that individually, but also collectively in teams and organizations. Right. right. And if you're experiencing that, you know, that's very normal. It's a reflection of the environment in which you're operating in. So, you know, we, we can help with that, but we can also help easy earlier, you know, like, <laughs> it, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. So- um, and, and you, you've probably experienced it. And those who are uh, regular listeners to the podcast know that um, the the folks who sponsor this podcast are with Flourish DX. They're over in Australia, right? And um, 
they have uh, the opportunity that we don't have in the U.S. Uh, is that there are policies and regulations that basically require attention mm -hmm. to psychological health and safety. And uh, it was, you know, I, I you know, I, I actually am honored, you know, to have you know, to have met these folks and be having this conversation uh, here in the U.S. where. We don't have policies. As a matter of fact, there is a bit of a culture in the U.S. that the harder you work, the better. Mm -hmm. uh, as a matter of fact, we we brag about the amount of vacation that we leave on the table and, you know, how tough we are. Again, like these other folks that you said were different around the world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you if you had the opportunity to sit with folks who could make a difference and uh, and, and want to get on the front end of this. So, again, we don't have you know, policies and regulation around that. But what would you tell people who are trying to avoid some of the negative experiences that you've seen through your research and through your business? What, what would you tell them if they're, they're, let's say they're either starting a company or they're just starting down this journey or they're coming out of COVID and they want to see if they can do this thing right. What, is, what does that start to look like? Yeah. And I, I think for me, it's about seeing it as a hazard and treating it as a hazard as you would any other. And let me paint the picture, and I'm, I'm going to do a light version of this, you know, like paint the picture of what goes wrong when we don't get this right, you know. And these are, this is a bit of a list of some of the impacts on people and organizations that were operating under this prolonged pressure. And so I'm going to read off a few, just off the list, just a few of them. And, you know, for me, I, behind every one of these, I'm seeing multiple stories in my head. I'm seeing the personal impacts, right? I'm seeing the human toll. And so the question I want people, decision makers in particular, you know, do I want this for my people? Do I want this for my organization, right? And I'm just going to give you, you know, just a few, a tip of the iceberg, really. But, you know, people are damaged by the experience, right? Huge impacts on their general health, both in the short and the long term. Um, worker injury, we know that definitely goes up you know, as a result the physical safety of our people, that chronic fatigue, got drug and alcohol abuse, sleep problems, huge, you know, is that a large chunk of people's life, people lose a sense of happiness or quality of life during this time, right? You think about those things we put on hold, health, joy, relationships. So with that comes with, you know, divorce, the lack of availability for children, conflict in the family the inability to be able to do this work in the future. So we're losing amazing people from the different sectors in which we operate. You know, loss of confidence in our own abilities. We've got anger, anxiety, depression, suicide. You know, like you couldn't get more serious when it comes to the individual impacts. And when it comes to the organizational impacts, you've got everything from short-term thinking to just being crippled by, you know, turnover and um, what it takes to be constantly replacing people and then the wear and tear on those that are, remain and stay um, poor decision making like there's so many short-term thinking so many impacts to the inability to to be able to meet your mission and to be productive and effective um, so huge impacts to um, creativity all sorts of things at the organizational level so for me if you think about in my mind if we think about another hazard let's say we had someone working on scaffolding Right. To me, it's kind of obvious in my head what's going to go wrong if something goes wrong. Right. We can just imagine how catastrophic that would be for someone up on the scaffolding if we if we didn't get that right, you know, and an error was made either in how we managed that, trained them, gave them equipment for it, or in how they approached it. Right. That's going to be pretty, pretty horrible. 
if something goes wrong. And I guess exactly what you were saying before, when it comes to psychosocial hazards, it's very hard to join those dots and see the impact as we would of someone falling off scaffolding. And that's why I've kind of pulled out some of those bits from the research around, you know, what, what is at stake? There's a massive amount at stake if we don't get this right, you know? Um, so treat it like any other hazard. Have things in place to look at what are the organisational bricks that we can actually address. How can we, you know, minimise what people are experiencing in terms of these psychosocial hazards? Um, what training do people need to, to have? What personal protective equipment do we need to give people? Right? And for that, you know, we created what is a doing well pack of cards. The idea being everybody in your organisation can have a protective plan in place to prevent burnout and damage rather than waiting until we've damaged people, right? So that whole idea around treating it like we would any other hazard, I think is really important. And then getting excited about the fact there's an alternative and the alternative is growth, you know, and that happens both in an organisation and in teams as well as in individuals. So it's just about getting super intentional about shifting that balance from damage towards growth. That's the challenge we had and, we, we you know, We've, we've managed to learn a lot through this whole process that we can apply in any kind of context so that, you know, we can do well, not just avoid harm, but we can do amazing things, you know, if we set our people up well. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I heard once that you should do everything you can to learn from the mistakes of others because you can't live long enough to make them all yourself. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and uh, it is interesting to me uh, the opportunity. So when I look at, again, what's going on here in the States now, you can look at it one of two ways. You could look at it as, you know, uh, woe is us. You know, we don't have a standard. We don't have this. We don't have that. Or we could alternatively look at it to say, wow, a lot of other countries have gone through a lot as, as we have, and they've actually found ways to be able to address it. So perhaps we could, you know, take what they've already developed and take what they've learned, build on it in this environment and maybe move ahead even faster yeah, because sure. we, don't, we don't necessarily have to replicate all of the learning because the learning's already been done. No, and, you don't and, need and to that, be sitting with your team that are burnt out and thinking, and, where is this research? Like that, I did, you know, you absolutely. To travel the globe, trying to pull it all together. You know, it's, it's there for you. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it is there. And, and again, it's, it's just so, so nice to so so why uh, so I, I understand you moved uh, into the state of Colorado. Yes. Um, uh, how how does it feel? Does it feel uh, like New Zealand? I mean, did you decide because it was similar? So how did you end up in Colorado? Great question. There's a short answer and a long answer to that. Okay. <laughs> the short answer is we were getting pulled more and more into the U.S. just in terms of some of the challenges um, that you know we've faced over the last couple of years. So. How do we support health workers that were dealing with burnout through COVID? You know, so the poll was definitely here for what we're doing in Hummingly. So that's the short answer as to how we came to the US. Um, the long answer for how we came to the US um, that had a piece of a bit of the factor of that is my husband took a job here um, just before COVID, with the idea being that he would spend two weeks here, two weeks back in New Zealand. And of course, then the borders closed. And so he got stranded here. It was in Arizona. Um, stranded in Arizona and I was back in New Zealand and eventually we decided actually we, we'd like to be in the US and we looked around as to where we'd like to be based and I think Colorado is kind of like New Zealand on steroids you know like okay. I think 
<laughs> I think New Zealand, we um, we love the outdoors. Here, people live for the outdoors. Absolutely. You know, like there seems to be a real genuine care um, for people here. So, you know, we think we're friendly, welcoming, pretty amazing people in New Zealand. I've had the most amazing welcome from you know people in Colorado here. So, yeah, so many ways loving it. Um, yeah, been a real welcome for Hummingly and, and all we're doing. Um, yeah, just trying to. That's, Keep up, really. <laughs> that, that, that's just wonderful. It's wonderful to hear a story when, you know, uh, when we were able to poach resources from other countries to help our country be better. <laughs> I, just, I think that's a wonderful idea. So, um, you know, uh, we, we have still uh, have a, a few more moments. Uh, so what's what what's next for for you and for Hummingly? What's what do you see the future looking like? Uh, that, that's one. And actually, I want to ask two questions and have you answer them both. And have you seen, and this might, you might answer this one first, have you seen folks particularly in the U.S. who get this, who seem to, not, you know, no particular names, but have you seen organizations who go like, hmm, they have something there? And, you know, I, so are there folks doing this well? And then what do you see coming next? Yeah, um, I start with the, the latter question, I guess. There are definitely folks doing this well or folks that are going, oh, we get this is important. You know, and I'm hearing a lot of leaders saying, I know I've got to step up and support to my people. I know they're tired. I know they've been through a lot. But I also hear them say, but I'm not a psychologist. Like, how am I meant to do this? Like, please help me. Help me understand how to go about doing this and make it super practical and make it really easy. Man, I'm tired too. You know, like I've been through a lot. So um, definitely hearing real appetite, you know, and I think that's probably the silver lining to COVID is us understanding what does this actually look like? We're starting to see the impacts of a really tough couple of years, you know, and so people realizing that this stuff is important, that it is connected to performance, and hopefully people do it just because it's the right thing to do as leaders. But if nothing else, you know, that there is really a huge case for you know, performance, productivity, all those things we know are so vital to any organization and the mission that you have. Um, so yes, there's definitely a real appetite for it. And I, mean, I think COVID's probably helped with that, you know, just a, an awakening to the importance of all of this. Um, what next for Hummingly? Hummingly, um, Elizabeth and I, so my co-founder and I, we've been doing a lot of work intensely with you know organizations. We, we run training with leaders, we run training with their teams. And we can't scale ourselves in that kind of approach, right? We can only be in so many places at once. Um, and so what's been really exciting for us is we've created just recently what is a workshop in a box. So it's the idea that you can get your people together, you can have access to this amazing wisdom from incredible people all over the globe that we've collated for you, you know, and you can really benefit as leaders and as teams in a way that's much more accessible. You know, like it's, as I said before, we feel that ethical responsibility to make sure this information is out there and people are benefiting from it, you know, in their organizations and their teams and their communities. So for us, we're yeah, pretty excited about a new approach where we can make it a lot more accessible and scalable for people. Absolutely. That's uh, that's wonderful to hear. There's uh, again, as I as I you know shared just a bit, some of these sometimes it is a little tough, you know. Uh, having a conversation about, you know, psychological health and safety in the U.S. because there are, again, there are some who just don't get it at all, uh, who, you know, I've, I've had folks tell me, well, if there's not if there's not a physical injury involved, if it's not something I can see, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to manage that. Mm -hmm. 
and not recognizing the lack of being able to see it as a psychosocial hazard in and of itself. It's the stress associated with, I know something's going wrong. I'm not really sure what it is. I don't even know who to ask. That yeah. is yeah. a form of stress. And, and you, you mentioned it you know, before, it's a, it's a real set of stressors for the leaders as well. Yes. Because sometimes we, you know, there's an assumption that, you know, and this is, it's more than an assumption, it's actually true that folks at the bottom of the organization are really taking, you know, they're really being exposed to a lot of things, but I think it's, they're being exposed to different things. Generally, the physical hazards are greater at the lower end of the, of the, you know, of the organization uh, where, where the work is being done, but the psychosocial ones may be greater at the top. They may be because they just may be because there's this expectation you do things and you be places and and you you know you you be positive all the time even sometimes when it's not positive for you. I, I had that experience particularly in my opportunity as a fire chief that there were some days where it was really really lonely and really really confusing about and I can't go out and tell people that that I'm not really sure what we're supposed to do next but we have to do something. <laughs> so you have to come up with something, call somebody, phone a friend. Um, yeah. But I, I think it's just so important to recognize that at every level of the organization, yes. this is important. These lessons, yeah. they apply to everybody. They may yes. apply slightly differently, but they apply to everybody. They really yeah. do. Yeah. And I think leaders, particularly in the last couple of years, they've had to be making decisions under time pressure with a really imperfect information, very you know, uncertain conditions that they're operating in they're having to constantly innovate the way in which we work and operate as teams you know as a result of this changing environment that they're in and you know sometimes when the pressure's on like this the kpi the things they've got to achieve are even more critical and they've got to give the message to their people we understand this is tough do what just do what you can so they're kind of stuck between these two impossible realities and they're trying to buffer their people but also trying to you know um find ways to perform under pressure so you know, I think leaders too, that decision-making in this kind of environment is so hard. The holding hope for your people, you know, and balancing, communicating reality. And there's so much that's going on for leaders that I think, you know, it has been a really tough run. Um, and again, you know, the kind of environments and, and situations and learnings that we get from disasters are really applicable to leaders. And it's nice for them to know too that there's some pressure-tested strategies out there you know, it's That's not right. unprecedented in that sense that there is nothing, no guidance for them. You know, there it, are yeah. some, yeah. Ex exactly, exactly, yeah. That, that's, you know, some incidents become emergencies and some emergencies become disasters and they're all they're all connected, you know. Yeah. And, and uh, what works in the small one will work in the big one. It's not something new. No, <laughs> it really no. isn't. Yeah. You know, as a matter of fact, I, I find that it's really important that we have strategies that we can use every day so we get good at them. Yeah. Rather than, you know, this separate, oh, something happened. We go to a totally separate plan, a totally separate group of people that we, you know, and I'm sure you found this, you know, particularly in disaster situations, uh, there are human beings involved and it's difficult to make those relationships up on the spot. Mm -hmm. So it, uh, the teams that already have built relationships already can be more effective if they're practicing treating each other with dignity and respect and working together and considering each other's, you know, stressors. If that's just the thing that you do, I, I'm of the belief that disasters simply make you more of what you already were. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. if you were, uh, if you were barely hanging on and uh, at each other and, you know, they say in tough times that, you know, when uh, dysfunctional teams 
turn on one another mm-hmm. and functional teams turn to one another. Yeah. And it's because yeah. of the pressure. There's all these things. And we forget about even some of our differences because, look, you know, this is the big one. This is the earthquake, the flood, the what have you, the pandemic that, you know, again, in many ways has helped us as humanity to address some things that have been around here for forever. Mm-hmm. And we've we've simply had to deal with them because we yes. couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't run from it. That's yeah. the beauty of disaster. <laughs> when you've disrupted things so um, completely that you have to innovate, you have to change things that need changing. You know, things are exposed and that's the beauty and, and you know, I think the pain that comes with growth. Sure. You know, yeah, sure. That's, sure. that's the opportunity, the horrible opportunity that yeah, we need to seize. Yeah. Absolutely. So uh, as we come to a close, are there any uh, you know final thoughts you'd like to leave with? You know, so these uh, we get more people who listen to us. Some will watch us on YouTube. <laughs> but uh, for those who are either listening or watching uh, any anything that we've not covered that you, you a little nugget you want to leave with people uh, as they're as they're listening. Am I can I be greedy and have two? Sure, sure. <laughs> These sure. are two stories from a Winston Churchill fellowships that have really stuck with me and have really influenced and changed the way in which I lead and I know have helped leaders and teams everywhere that we've we've worked with. So there are two stories, but they come with two questions. And um, the first is an Australian leader after a big event and a phenomenal leader. We were so excited to go and meet meet her. Like she has just what she has accomplished in her career, mind blowing. You know, she's one of those highly respected, amazing, competent leaders. And we were to go and meet her at her work to do our interview. And she said to us, "I need you to come meet me at home." She said, "Not sure." She said, "I need that to happen because I'm off on stress leave. Like I am experiencing some pretty significant health and mental health challenges as a result of you know." this prolonged stress that I've been operating in. And we said, look, how about we do this another day? Like this doesn't just know more important now than it ever has been. Come and see me. So we went and saw her and she said to me, you know, she, she described all of the impacts and just what had happened to her, you know, and she said, but it's not the scary thing, Charlie. That's not even the worst bit. We're like, well, well, what is? And she said, when I stopped and, you know, finally stopped and, I just took stock and I turned around and looked at my team and I realized they were about three weeks behind me. And like it just gave us goosebumps, you know. So now I often ask the question, this is really important for leaders to ask themselves, where am I at? Because this is where I'm leading others to, right? Am I leading them to a place of chaos or calm, confidence, you know, um, you know, again, looking at those lessons and strategies, am I learning them to the to the the place where we've learned from, you know, a lot of those um, hard-won lessons from other leaders, or are we going to be making the same mistakes? You know, where am I leading them to? And I think as leaders, we often sacrifice ourselves, right? And we can't because we're going to be leading people to that place. So that to me is a, a very, and it relates to the second question. The second one comes from a very good friend of mine, Kate Brady, Dr. Kate Brady from um, formerly Australian Red Cross. So amazing disaster leader. And she was a great support to us after the Christchurch earthquakes and our leadership role there. And I remember she sat me down one day and said, I'm going to tell you a story, Jolie. And clearly this is a message I needed to hear at the time, right? You know, and we often work in, in um, organizations where we're really driven by the mission so much so that we sacrifice ourselves to it. You know? And it's not culturally all that okay to be um, 
yeah, it, as you said, it's like, you know, if I work longer, harder, I'm doing better. You know, that's, that's the kind of cultural environment. And she sat me down. She said, you know, I went to my very first professional job when I was really young. She said, I went to the job interview. She said, I was nailing it, Jolie. I answered all the questions right. I was hitting it out of the park. Like, you know, it was doing so well. And then the hiring manager asked me one question that just threw me and I didn't know how to answer it. And so what's that question? She said, it, she said, so Kate, I just want to know one more thing. Are you a martyr or are you a professional? And Kate said, pardon? She said, look, it's full disclosure. It's totally fine. I've learned that I probably can't change martyrs. You know, like I'll just, I'll run with it. If you're a martyr, great. You'll fill every single slot on my roster, right? You'll be here, like the first one here, the last one to leave. You'll say yes when you should say no. You'll, you know, like you will run hard and fast, really care about what we're doing. That's Great. I will get a huge amount out of you in the next maybe year if we're lucky, but I'm not going to profesh- uh, invest in you professionally because you know you're probably not going to last very long. You'll 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 burn bright, you'll burn fast, but you'll burn out. You know, so I'd much rather Kate that you're a professional. If I had to choose, you know, you will still deeply care about the mission, but you will have some boundaries in place. You know, you will say no sometimes when I want you to say yes. You you know, um, but you will work hard but you will do it in a way that you know that you can sustain yourself and you will have a greater impact over time and we will achieve so much more together mm. and I can invest in you professionally. Which is it, Kate? Are you a martyr or are you a professional? Mm. So mm. that's a question I carry all the time because I'm a recovering martyr. Clearly there was a reason, Kate, you know, I needed to tell me that story at the time, right? And so this is my, my go-to question. You know, I think in so many organisations and sectors that we work in, I think that looking after ourselves and finding ways to be intentional about sustaining ourselves, it's not very comfortable, you know, asking for what we need sometimes is not very comfortable. I think part of our, our social conditioning, you know, I was conditioned and maybe it's as a, as a woman not to, you know, to be, to be there for everybody else and not, I don't know, maybe it's part of your identity, you know, that being, want to be seen as capable or that person that people come to, it's a safe pair of hands, or maybe it's the culture of our team or our organization, or even our society, right? You know, so this is kind of my go-to question that helps me break out of that mold, you know, and if teams are going to stay at their best and perform at their best and really stay well, then we need to find ways to really change this cultural approach, right? We need to find ways um, to change the conversation. And I think um, I'm really thankful, David, you know, you having me on this podcast today because that's what you're doing with this podcast, right? Changing the conversation. And the culture around, you know, understanding the importance of psychological safety. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely, yeah. Well, it's it's been my pleasure to have you. Uh, if if people want to uh, continue conversing with you, what's the best way to do that? They can check me out on LinkedIn, so Jolie Wills, um, or they can look us up on Hummingly, which is hummingly.co. Co. So, okay. Okay. yeah, love for people to get in touch. Well, well, again, thank you very much. This has been uh, really a unique conversation. As I said, it's it's really nice to have someone who uh, has uh, has some lived experience, uh, but also has some expertise to be able to offer to others. Because we, we there are a lot of challenges, a lot of challenges, and this is a a big, broad, complex country with a lot of things going on. And we need multiple ways of addressing it. There is no one of us who has all the answers. There's no one 
company or consultant or standard or organization. Nobody has all of it. So to the extent that if you're listening today, to the extent that you've heard something that will be helpful to you, please reach out to Jolie. We're, one of the things that we are trying to do is expand the community of people who recognize psychosocial hazards as a thing <laughs> and want to do something about it. Uh, and, and again, if you are one of those organizations who is struggling, again, reach out to her as well. I'm also available to help. You can you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find the uh, the previous episodes of this podcast. We've had lots of people. They say after you reach, you know, 10 or so, they think you're going to go along and we're well past that. So I think we're going to do this for a while. So again, please do reach out and uh, don't don't suffer in silence. Don't do this alone. You don't have to. There are those of us who do. Uh, we we care about the journey that you're trying to take. And uh, I, I really love, Julie, what you said about, you know, watch the journey that you're on because you're leading other people that way. Uh, I, I'm going to end up repeating that one. And the journey we want to help uh, many of you on is a journey towards a more psychologically healthy and safe workplace. So until next time, on the next episode of the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast, uh, we, uh, we appreciate you for listening and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety USA podcast. To stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in America, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com.